All right. So we are going to kind of be continuing in our series, Kingdom Through Crisis and Chaos. It's, we're, we're taking a, a related detour, so, so we're going to just be, you might want to actually call it more of a, a flight up for a few for a few minutes here this morning. We're going to look with a bird's eye view at the Davidic covenant this morning. Uh, next week we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 7, and, and that is where God makes his covenant with David. So to prepare for that week, this week we're just going to take a bird's eye view at that covenant from the rest of scripture and see why is this so significant to us? Why is what we're going to see next week so important? And so we're going to go to Psalm 89 for that. Um, a couple of things I should mention. Uh, one, Ryan is over at Aniston Bible Church this morning. Uh, some of you know that, that Pastor Bob has been on a sabbatical this summer, and so they've been having different preachers come each week. And so Ryan is serving there this morning, preaching the word to Anderson Bible Church. And, and Jamie, I believe he's going to be back for lunch, right? So, so he'll be here, and uh, you can uh, talk to him then, tell him everything you disagree with about my sermon. So <laughs> don't do that, please. But... Also, I want to warn you ahead of time, um, get your Bibles out this morning. One, Psalm 89 has 52 verses, and so we're, we're going to be plowing into that, but we're also going to be looking at a couple handfuls of other passages this morning, and, and I'd love for you to, to see them, to, to just get the sense of how the Bible is connected by, by turning with me from one to the next to the next, and so have your Bibles ready and and we're going we're gonna to do a Bible study this morning as, as we look into this. And so Psalm 89 is the text that's before us today. And, and before we jump into it, I just want to ask you guys if you've ever broken a promise. Who here has ever broken a promise? All right, that's only like half of you. That's very surprising. That is very surprising. But for those of you that have broken a promise at some point in your life, I'm glad you're being honest about it. Um, we're familiar with broken promises. We've all done it. We've, we've all experienced it. We've all seen it. We, we've all at one time, I'm sure all of us at one time, promised our parents that we would make the bed, that we would take the trash out, that we would do whatever chore they asked us to do, and, and then we didn't do it. Anyone can say yes to that, right? So, so we've all experienced that. We've all done that. We've all heard the athlete who promises a world championship at the beginning of the season, right? Now, as far as I know, only one person has delivered on that promise in a, in a historical way. Joe Namath with the Jets, and I don't think they've won since, and so I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but, but we've all heard the athlete who promises it and, and then fails to deliver, right? We've all experienced, continually experienced, the political candidates who, who promise to end corruption and promise to bring change, and then instead, without a doubt, they always advance corruption, they always bring negative change. We've all experienced those, those candidates, and and we've all seen or experienced or known people who, who take that altar on their wedding day, make vows to each other, promise to never leave or forsake, and then in the coming years they do just that. We, we are very familiar with broken promises. Now in all those cases, why, why can't these people keep their promises? Why can't we just seem to keep the promises we make? A promise is a promise, but, but there's one or two reasons for each of them. Either... either the person can't keep it. They're, they're unable. I think this would, in some ways, apply to, to the kid who, who says he's going to make his bed, but, but he just forgets. He just forgets about it, and, he, and he's, he's literally not capable of, of making and keeping promises at a certain age. At some point, that switches from un, inability to unfaithfulness, where, or the reason that, 
the promise is not kept is because of unfaithfulness, because the, the, the kid does not follow through with his word. And, and we see that with the athlete. Maybe he's unable. Maybe someone else is just better. Most of the time they are. Um, political candidates, they're, they're both unable in a lot of ways and unfaithful in a lot of ways to keep their promises. And, and spouses, many of the times, are simply unfaithful. They, they're tired. They do not persevere. And so they don't keep their promise. And, and here's the principle that, I, that we need to believe this morning. We've all experienced this. A, a promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it. A promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it. What words themselves mean nothing. But the person who says those words means everything. A promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it. And this is important because the Bible is a book filled with promises. This, this is a book filled with promises, and, and it calls you to stake your life on these promises. The Bible calls you to stake your eternity on these promises. And these are made by the God of the universe to us. And, and so if a promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it, then when the Bible makes promises, we need to ask ourselves, are, are they reliable? Who's making these promises and, and is he reliable? Now, I would say there, there are two famous promises in Scripture that Anyone that's, that's even the least bit familiar with the Bible probably has heard and has applied these promises to themselves. Jeremiah 29, 11, you guys know it, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. That's a promise from God. That's a precious promise that, that God is promising you will have pros- a prosperous future. You're going to have a hope, even though right now it doesn't seem like that. It's a promise that I am for you. Romans 8.28 is the other one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let me ask, how many of you have ever found comfort in that promise? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. These are precious promises. But I also believe that these promises are are tip-of-the-iceberg promises. And you know, you see the tip of the iceberg coming out of the wall, but underneath there, there is a, a mountain of promises that holds those up. And, and the shameful thing, the, the, the sad thing, is that many people want to apply these promises to themselves, and they have no idea what's holding those promises up. They, they don't know what's underneath those promises that makes them true, that makes them effective. And so then when life comes, and it seems like all of a sudden God is not prospering us. God is not giving us a future. Without understanding what's holding those promises up, then, then they begin to say, well, this, this God is unreliable. Either this God is unable to keep his promises or he's unwilling to keep his promises because of what I'm experiencing. And, and, and then something else happens and, and they say, this is so bad that there's no way God could ever bring good out of this. So, so that promise that he works all things for good God, God is unable to keep that promise because this is so bad. And what's happened is they don't understand what's underneath that promise. They, they don't understand the, the chain of promises in Scripture that all are linked together. And they begin to distrust God. And they, and they turn away from God. And they, and they stop depending on God. What do we do when it seems like God is, 
is either unable to keep his promises or is unwilling to keep his promises. What, what, what do we do when it seems like the God who says he is faithful seems to be faithless to us? When we've staked our lives on those promises and then we experience what seems like a breaking of those promises from God, what do we do? Well, that is what Psalm 89 is about. And so I want to invite you to turn there to Psalm 89. Like I said, this this psalm is about the Davidic covenant. And so in some ways it seems very foreign to us. It seems very far from us. It seems very unrelated to to our day-to-day lives. But I, I want you to see as we press in this morning to see why this is so important to us. All right, and so... Ethan, this is a psalm by Ethan the Ezraite. We don't know hardly anything about who Ethan the Ezraite is. He, he seems to have lived close to the time of David, perhaps in the, in the next generation after David. And, and we, don't, we don't really know why this psalm was written, the specific circumstances that were going on. But, but it's 52 verses where Ethan the Ezraite is, is essentially dealing with the question, what do we do when it seems like the faithful God is being faithless? What should we do? And so, Psalm 89, what we want to do is start in verses 1 through 4. And here what we want to see is the priority of the Davidic covenant. The priority of the Davidic covenant. And you'll see what I mean as we read here. Let's, let's read 1 through 4. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. And I will build your throne for all generations. Okay, these first four verses teach us of the the priority of the Davidic covenant, the significance of the Davidic covenant. It it was significant to Ethan, and it's significant to us. And and the question is, why? And and what I want you to see first is, is in the text, you'll notice 1 through 2 and 3 through 4 have some strong parallels going on. All right, so so look in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. See that word forever? Now now look down in verse 4. I will establish your offspring forever. Forever. Again, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations in verse 1, and then verse 4, and build your throne for all generations. So, so these first two verses is Ethan saying, I'm going to sing of your steadfast love forever. I'm going to proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. And, and that's based in God saying, I'm going to establish David's offspring forever. I'm going to build David's throne for all generations. There, there is this intentional link between God's steadfast love and David's throne. There's, there's this intentional link between God establishing his faithfulness and God establishing David's throne. So what's the link? The, the, the thing is that when God makes a covenant in scripture, he is binding himself to that covenant. And so, so the, the Davidic covenant is important, it's significant, because the steadfast love of the Lord is expressed to his people exclusively within its framework. So So listen, Ethan understood if God has made this covenant with David, 
to show steadfast love to David, then that means that there, there will be no steadfast love to me outside of God's steadfast love to David. So, so how many of you this morning want to experience God's steadfast love? That can't come to you outside of the framework of the Davidic covenant. God made it that way. God, God, God so works in history that, that for you to experience his love, he needs to be faithful to his covenant to David. And so this is important to us. Now, that, that raises another question, and, that, and that's just why. That, that seems very odd that, that God's covenant with David thousands of years ago would have an effect on my experience of God's steadfast love. Why is that the case? And the reason that is the case is because the Davidic covenant does not stand alone. God's covenants in Scripture are not just isolated covenants that God makes to different people throughout history that are unconnected. Instead, there is a chain link between each covenant so that they all stand together, that all of God's promises and God's covenants in Scripture form one covenant of grace. They form one covenant of redemption. And I want you to see this. And so get your Bibles, get ready to turn in Scripture, and go all the way back, keep your place in Psalm 99, but go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Now, I should say that not all of these passages are going to call what we see a covenant. Sometimes it's just a promise. Sometimes it's a prophecy. But at the same time, 2 Samuel 7 never uses the word covenant. And then you see later in Scripture that they call it a covenant. When God makes a promise, when God speaks his word, when God makes a covenant, it is God saying, I bind myself to this. And so, so we're going to see a thread of promises and prophecies and covenants here that show how these are all linked together. And, and this is all behind Ethan in his mind. This, this is all in Ethan's mind when he realizes that the Davidic covenant is important. So Genesis 3, verse 15 you guys know this verse. This comes after Adam and Eve sinned against God, tempted by the serpent. And God says in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of the curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Adam and Eve just ate of the fruit. They just rebelled against God. God has just cursed them. He has, he has brought the curse of death. Sin has marred the world. The fall has taken place. And in that, this, this is the very first proclamation of grace in Scripture. This is the very first promise of God to redeem his people in Scripture. And when, what does he promise? He promises a descendant from Adam and Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the first promise of God in Scripture. A descendant who will crush the head of the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve into sin. And in that crushing, this descendant will undo the entire effects of the curse. He will undo the fall. That is what God is promising here in Genesis 3.15. And so I'm afraid that what we do is we see that, we say, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to the New Testament and, and we don't realize that this thread is woven throughout the Old Testament. And so that's what I want us to see. This is not just a promise in Genesis 3 that we don't think, see again until the New Testament. We're going to see this woven through. And, and I think that God's people always had this in mind. They always were asking, where's the seed? Where's the offspring? When is, when is the head of the serpent going to be crushed by the seed of Eve? They're looking for it. I want you to see this by turning just a few pages to Genesis 5. 
So we have this promise, a descendant from Adam and Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 5, we, we have this genealogy that, that's connecting each generation to the next one, from, from Adam to Seth to Enosh, and so on and so on. And, and what we're seeing is, is this trail of descendants. And each one, they live, they have children, and they die. And so the curse is, is still in effect. Death is still coming about, but, but there's this lineage coming from Adam and Eve. And look down at the very end of the chapter in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, and let's just say that Lamech is, is Adam and Eve's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, all right? So he's part of their line. When he lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What's he saying there? The first half, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, Lamech is aware of the curse. Lamech knows that this world is cursed. Lamech knows that this world is fallen. He knows that when when Adam and Eve fell, that God cursed the ground. And he knows also that they're looking for the seed. And and he looks at his son, and, and in some way, whether God revealed this to him through Special revelation, we don't know, but he looks at Noah and he says, this one's going to bring us relief. This son is going, he is in some way related to this seed. So I just want you to see Lamech is looking for the seed. Lamech is looking for the promise to be fulfilled in Noah. And what we know about Noah is that God essentially re-begins the, the line of humanity through Noah, through the flood. Noah and his family are, are, are the only family left after the flood. And so, so we had the seed being traced through Adam and Eve. Now the seed's being traced through Noah. Okay? Now turn a few more chapters over to Genesis 12. Again, before this, in Genesis, we have this genealogy from Noah to his son Shem all the way through down to Terah, who has a son named Abram. And so this, this is connected to Noah. This, this, this line of descendants is continuing forward. And in Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord comes to Abram and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what's happening here? Again, this is, this is the Abrahamic covenant. And what's happening is God is carrying forward his prior promises through Abraham. He, he's, there's, there's a link between what's come before and what's happening now. There, there was the promise to Adam and Eve for a seed that will crush out of the serpent. And that comes through Noah, who, who God preserves through the flood. And now this comes to Abraham. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, the curse will be undone, and all peoples will be blessed in Abraham. And so, again, just notice there's this chain of promises going forward in Scripture. Go towards the end of the book, Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And he's blessing his sons before he dies. And in verse 10, he's speaking to his son, Judah. 
And he, he makes this prophecy, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, of all peoples, of all the families of the earth. And so again, this, this covenant is being traced through now to Judah. And so that's why in Revelation we see that, that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Just, just I want you guys to have a category for why, why, why is Judah important? Again, because he, this is where the seed is being traced through, from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham to Judah. And so now we have Israel, and, and within Israel we have this promise that we're still waiting to see the fulfillment of. When is this seed going to come and undo the curse? These aren't unrelated promises. We're, we're, we're still looking for the seed. So go to Exodus 19. Next book. Exodus 19. God has visited Israel in slavery. He has redeemed them out of Egypt with his hand. He has, he has sent the plagues. He has delivered them across the Red Sea. He has brought them to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, verse 4, the Lord says to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right. This is the Mosaic Covenant. What I want you to know about this covenant is, is it's not the same. This one's not the same as what we've seen so far. Do you notice in the other, in the other covenants, we've not seen any, if you do this, Abraham. We've not seen, if you do this, Eve. If you do this, Judah, then this will happen. We've just seen God making a promise, carrying forward that original promise to bring a seed. But here, what, what does he say in, in verse 5? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So, so the onus is on you, Israel, to keep my covenant. Then you'll be a kingdom of priests. Then you'll be a holy nation. And what do the people say in verse 8? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right, now, what comes next is the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel. Now we're in 2 Samuel. What do you guys know about Israel through those books? They didn't do it, right? They did not do it. And so what is the function of this covenant? Why, why did God give this covenant? The New Testament gives us two reasons. One, this covenant acted as a, a preserver of Israel because the seed was going to come out of Israel. The seed was going to come from Abraham, from Judah. And so this covenant acts as the preserver of Israel as, as a nation. It, it, he, the laws of Israel preserved them as a distinct identity waiting for that seed to come. But, but what else this covenant does, the other thing it does is it exposes their need for the seed. This covenant exposes to Israel, we need that seed to come and undo what we've done. We need God to fulfill that promise. Every time that Israel fell into idolatry through disobeying the Mosaic law, it was a reminder to them that you're sinners, you are under God's curse, 
You face death and damnation, and you need God to fulfill his Genesis 3 promise of the seed. And so, so this is important because it exposes how much we need that seed. And so again, we, we're, we're going through Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, waiting for that seed who's going to come from Judah, who comes from Abraham, who comes from Noah, who comes from Adam and Eve. And 2 Samuel 7, you can turn there. We're going to look at this closely next week. 2 Samuel 7. The Lord comes to David. Look in verse 9. The Lord says to David, I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. What does that sound like? I'll make for you a great name. Sounds like the promise to Abraham, right? I'll make your name great. Like the name of the great ones of the earth, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Again, it's, 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 a, it's a recapitulating of the promises made to Abraham way back then. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be blessed. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. And then he says, verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so again, this, this covenant is carried forward now to David. And so... Again, we're in this section, we're in Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4, and we see that, that for some reason, Ethan sees the Davidic covenant as, as the exclusive framework in which he will experience God's steadfast love. Why is that? Because the Davidic covenant is chain-linked all the way back to that original promise of God to send the seed who will undo the curse. And so if we want to experience the undoing of the curse, then we need God to fulfill the Davidic covenant. That's why it's significant. There's no salvation outside of God fulfilling the Davidic covenant. There's no salvation outside of God fulfilling the Davidic covenant. There's no steadfast love outside of this. And, and Ethan understood that. And, and I just want to make an application here too. As you can turn back to Psalm 89. We'll stay in this for a little while now. But I want to make an application here based on what Ethan is doing. Ethan understood his personal story in light of God's redemptive story. Like Ethan saw what was happening to, to David, and, and he, was, he saw this, this problem that was going on with God's faithfulness to the covenant, and he realized, this affects me, because God's story is the story that matters. It's not just some insignificant story to my life, but, but my story is found in this story, in, in this story that we were just going through. Ethan understood that, and so, so the application for us is, is, do you understand that your life story, your personal story, your day-to-day life, its meaning is found in this story? Do, do you understand your life in the context of God's redemptive story? Or do, or do you understand your life just through just a self-centered 
different events that happen to you? What, what, what are you making of it? Your own personal narrative, trying to, trying to create meaning for yourself. That meaning doesn't actually mean anything because God created you and you are a sinner who needs a seed to come and save you, as God promised. And so what I want to encourage you to do is, is to think of your life each day in terms of God's story, not, not just your own story, to, to look at the events of your life and to interpret them according to what God is doing in Scripture, not just according to what you're making of your own life in your own isolated context. And so, so when something significant happens to you, interpret that based in, in this book. Don't look to this book and, and see how does this speak into my story that I'm writing, but, but realize that you're a part of a story that God has been writing for all of history, the focal point of which is the cross. And, and, and the significance of my life is going to be found in that story that starts with creation, ends with new creation, focal point on the cross. You enter into it when God redeems you from your sin through faith in Jesus Christ. That's your story. Those are your focal points that you interpret your life through. Not significant events, not significant losses, not, not big, amazing things that happen to your life. Marriages are great, children are great, tragedies are awful, but those aren't the focal points of our lives. The, 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 the cross is the focal point of our lives. And we need to find our story within this story. That, that's what Ethan was doing. That's why this mattered to him so much. That's why he wrote 52 verses about the Davidic covenant. Understand your story in the context of God's redemptive story. All right. We're not going to spend that long on all 52 verses. All right. That, that's, those first four verses really set the stage for the rest of the psalm. And so the second point that Ethan wants to make is about the person who made the Davidic covenant. Verses 5 through 18, Ethan wants to just show who it is that made this covenant. Who is this God? And so... Look at verses 5 through 14. Let's read those together. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that's in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, your higher right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. What's he doing? What's he doing in these verses? He, he is rehearsing who God is. He is rehearsing the attributes of God. He, he is a wonderful God. He is a faithful God. He is a God greatly to be feared. He is a mighty God. He is, he is a sovereign God. He is a strong God. He is a delivering God, a just God, a righteous God. He's rehearsing who is this that made the covenant. It's this God is who made this covenant with David. And then in 15 through 18, he says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. 
for our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. And so there he, he connects who God is with how God blesses his people. And I think what he's doing here is, is he's showing you want to be in a relationship with this God. This God is glorious. This God is mighty. This God will bless you. This God will protect you. This God will exalt you. You want to be in relationship with this God. You want to be in covenant with this God. This is the God who made the covenant with David. And then he goes on in verses 19 through 37 to describe the promises of the covenant. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here because next week we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7. But what I want you to see in in 19 through 25 is that God promises a mighty reign. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. God promises David a mighty reign. And then in 26 and 27, he promises a father-son relationship. He says, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so God promises to David that, that that you are going to represent me on the earth as my son. That is an amazing promise to David, who, keep in mind, is just like us. Verse 28, he promises an everlasting dynasty. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Now, he does give a, a warning here in verse 30. He says, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and I will punish their iniquity with stripes. But listen, this, he's not saying I will remove the covenant. He says, But I will not remove from him my steadfast love. I will not be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. I will not alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies." Promises an everlasting dynasty. And he says, his sons may go astray, and I will punish them when they do, but I will never remove this covenant. I will never remove it. This is eternal. Amen. This goes on forever. It, it, this promise stands today. It will stand forever. And so what has Ethan done so far? I mean, this just sounds like a praise psalm, right? He's saying, God has built up his steadfast love by promising the covenant to David, this, this amazing God who blesses his people has made a covenant with David to be, for him to be the king who represents God. This is, this is the seed that, that God is going to use to deliver us, to save us. He's going to express his love to us eternally through this king. 
And he will not lie, he will not be faithless, but, but 38 takes a drastic turn. All of this, all of this is preparation for a charge that Ethan has against God. Look at verse 38. This is the problem of the Davidic covenant. But now you, God, have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. Look at this. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword. You've not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to seize. You have cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. Lord, you have covered him with shame. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening in Israel at this time when Ethan wrote this psalm. We don't really even know exactly when Ethan lived. That's one of the hard parts about it. But, but we see that in some way, the Davidic throne has been conquered. In some way, God's enemies, Israel's enemies, have, have come and, and God has given them victory over David. And, and Ethan goes so far as to say, you have renounced the covenant. Earlier, Ethan, Ethan rehearsed that God is a faithful God. And then he rehearsed that God made a promise to David. And he even rehearsed that God said to David, I will not lie to David. And then he looks at his situation. He looks at what's happening in Israel and he says, God, you've lied to David. You've renounced the covenant. The faithful God is being faithless to us. And for this covenant to be broken, Ethan knows that this isn't just insignificant to me and it only matters for David. He knows this, this covenant stands at the end of this chain of covenants and promises. And, and what rests right now, what, what, what is important right now is that if, if God's faithless to this covenant, then there's no seed coming. Then there's no end to the curse. And there's no steadfast love. And I just want to ask, have you ever felt like the Lord's been unfaithful? Have you ever looked at your life and just, and just said, is, is any of this true? I mean, I see these promises. I've staked my life on these promises. But is it even true? These these promises are only as reliable as the person who makes them. And have you ever wondered, are they reliable? Have you ever charged God with faithlessness to his word? This is how Ethan feels. This is why the Psalms are are amazing, because they they expose our hearts. And they, and they expose what's going on in us and what we're experiencing. And they also teach us how we should respond. How, do, how, does, how does Ethan respond? He charges God with this, but then he gives this plea for remembrance. Look at verses 46 through 51. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live 
and never see death. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Verse 49 is key. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Verse 52 is a, is a marker that ends book three of the psalm. The psalm ends at 51 with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. So, so Ethan ends this psalm with a plea for God to remember. It, it, this plea is, is a cry of desperation. Look, look I think when, when Ethan refers to wrath, I think what we can say is that Ethan understands that God did say, if, if his sons stray then I will punish them. I think Ethan sees that. I think he sees that God is, God is being faithful to that part of the covenant. He's, he's punishing them. But, but I think Ethan is desperate because he says, how is that ever going to change? Every king is going to go astray. Even David went astray. And so he's desperate. He, he says, how long will, will your wrath burn like fire? I think what he's really saying there is, how long will, will you keep bringing sons of David who are going to fail. How, how will you ever keep your covenant if these, if these sons continue to bring on your wrath? He recognizes the need for the seed. You, you see, he, he focuses on how short his time is. He, he sees, I, I'm going to die. My life is a, is a mist. Who's going to deliver my soul from death? He, he knows he needs deliverance, and he feels Israel's great need. He cries out to God. But listen, it's also a cry of faith. It's not just a cry of desperation. This, this is important. When, when Ethan looks at life and he sees, it seems like God is being faithless. It seems like God is going back on his promises. He still, in his desperation, makes a cry of faith. He says, how long? And the question, how long, expects an answer. The question, how long, expects an end. Yeah, right. Ethan, Ethan believes still in his heart of hearts, this God is who he says he is. This God will do what he said he will do, but I can't see it. I can't understand it. And so I'm just crying out right now, how long, O Lord? Also, want you to notice in verse 49 that Ethan's plea is made on the double foundation of God's attributes and God's promises. Where is your steadfast love of old? By your faithfulness, you swore to David. You notice that he's, he's not just saying, God, you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's saying, you are a God of steadfast love, and by your faithfulness, you swore that love to David. And so, so he realizes that these things are linked, that when God makes a promise, he binds himself to that promise. And there's this double foundation of his plea, this double basis that he says, God, you, because of who you are and because of what you've promised, remember the covenant. And that, that's how we need to pray. To God. That's how we need to plead to God. We need, we need to plead to God both knowing who he is and what he's done. You see, God's attributes are not just abstract realities. Like, it doesn't matter if someone's faithful if they have no relationship to me. It doesn't matter if someone's loving if, if they've not somehow promised that love to me. But 
for someone who's faithful and loving to come to you and say, I'm going to make a promise to love you, then all of a sudden that, that means something. And so God's attributes in Scripture are not just external realities that, that we look at, but, but God reveals his attributes so that we know his promises are reliable. And so we know that when we pray to God, we can, we can appeal to his attributes and his promises. And so when, when something's going on in your life, when you, when you are experiencing what Ethan's experiencing in some way, there's some things that you'll pray for that you don't know if God's going to say yes or no to. God's not revealed that in Scripture. But what you can do is pray prayers appealing to who God is, appealing to his steadfast love, appealing to his faithfulness, appealing to, to who he is, and then appealing to his promises. He's promised to work all things for good. He's promised to give us daily bread, to give us everything we need to live this life. He's made these promises to us, and so we can appeal to those promises and to his attributes. We need to be like Ethan. We need to have cries of desperation and cries of faith that are based in who God is and what he said. So the psalm ends there. It ends with this low note of they're mocking your anointed. And we need to ask, what, what, what is God's response? What is God's response to Ethan's plea for remembrance? Well, things get worse before they get better in the Old Testament. Things get worse before they get better. Israel divides from Judah. Both nations persist in idolatry. The northern tribes of Israel are conquered. The southern tribes of Judah are exiled to Babylon. And so it just gets worse. It just seems like God is still being faithless. There's, we're not even in Jerusalem anymore. And you said that David's throne would be established forever. But to the exiles, let's, let's get our Bibles out again. We're going to go to some passages now. Jeremiah. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. It's just forward a few books. Jeremiah 23. Again, Judah is in exile. No one's on the throne of David. They're not even in Jerusalem. And yet to the exiles, the Lord says this in 23 verse 5. Jeremiah 23 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Amen. And so when things get worse, things are at their absolute worst, it just seems like this God could not be true because he has been unfaithful to his promises. He makes this promise. He makes another promise. There's a righteous branch coming. There, there is a son of David coming who will not be like these other sons of David who, who landed you in exile, but he's going to be a righteous son. He's going to execute justice. He's going to execute righteousness. Judah will be saved. Israel will be secure. We're going to call this king the Lord is our righteousness. And so, and so what happens then? The, the Lord does return a small amount of, of Israelites from exile back to Judah. And, and they rebuild a temple and and there is a, a king set on the throne for, for some time, but, but it doesn't last. And 
and eventually Israel is just ruled by other kingdoms. And, and we see most of this just, just in the period between the Testament. But when the New Testament opens, there's, there's, this, there's this scene of Israel. They're, they're in the land, and they have a puppet king, but they're really ruled by Rome, and everyone's looking for what? For a Messiah. They're looking for the seed, right. still. Right. Thousands of years after that promise, they're still looking for the seed, living under Roman rule, looking for these promises to be fulfilled. And, and there's a woman named Elizabeth who becomes pregnant. And her cousin Mary, who's a virgin, becomes pregnant as well. Turn to Luke 1. Turn to Luke 1. Elizabeth's son is born. This is John the Baptist. And John's father, Zechariah, who's looking for this seed, who knows the Old Testament, who knows this story, says in Luke 1, verse 68, Luke 1, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. You see, you see the connections? David, Abraham. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah knows this, this, this is it. God is visiting us and he is fulfilling his promises. All the promises of the Old Testament. The promise to Adam and Eve, the promise to Abraham, the promise to, to Judah, the promise to David. He is fulfilling these promises. John the Baptist points the way to Mary's son, Jesus, who, who we know and this book is about in Luke. He, he lives a a powerful life testifying through his works and his, and his words that he is the Messiah. And in Luke 22, in Luke 22, verse 19, Jesus is with his disciples and, he's, and, he, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That this cup is, is the final promise. This, this cup is, is the new covenant that fulfills all the covenants, all the promises. This is, this is the one. This is the one. I, I am the seed. I am about to crush the head of the serpent. And, and how will he crush the head of the serpent? by giving his body, by giving his blood. How does God respond to Ethan's plea for remembrance? He sends his own son to be the sinless son of David, who eternally secures God's steadfast love for sinners by becoming their substitute for sin. I'm going to say that again. This is, this is how God responds to Ethan's plea. 
he sends his own son to be the sinless son of David, who eternally secures God's steadfast love for sinners by becoming their substitute for sin. Turn back to Psalm 89. I want you to see something absolutely amazing in Psalm 89. Now, in Ethan's day, 38 through 45 was Ethan's description of what was happening to the anointed king in Israel, what was happening to the throne. But little did Ethan know, what he was writing 38 through 45, what looked like God's renouncing the covenant was actually God's keeping the covenant. Think of the cross. Think of what was happening when Jesus was on the cross dying for our sins crying, why have you forsaken me? And and, and read these verses, 38 through 45. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. God rejected Christ. God was full of wrath against Jesus Christ. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Jesus wore a crown of thorns on the cross. You have breached his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. They're gambling for his cloak. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword. You've not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease, and you've cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth and you have covered him with shame. Little did Ethan know that he was describing what Jesus would go through. The sinless son of David, bearing the sin of all God's people. You don't need to turn here, but 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And therefore, through him, we say our amen for his glory. Listen, we are on the other side of the cross, and, and, and Ethan was looking for resolution. But the thing is, you don't, you don't see the cry in Scripture in the New Testament. You don't, you don't see the cry how long anymore. In the New Testament, you see we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the New Testament, you see we are awaiting a Savior who will come and transform our bodies to be like his glorious body. Only one time in Revelation do you see a group of people saying, how long? They are the martyrs, and they are saying, how long till you avenge our blood? How long till Christ comes and returns and and consummates all this and reigns on the throne of David. But that is a how long of confidence, not of confusion. It's, it's a how long of, of absolute assurance that that day will come. Yeah. All of God's promises find their yes in Christ Jesus. This, this is why the Davidic covenant is so important because it is part of this chain from the seed to the cross. If a promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it, then the cross demonstrates the absolute reliability 
of God and his promises. Listen, at the cross, we see who God is. We see his might. We see his love. We see his faithfulness. All the years of people wondering, is God going to be faithful? At the cross, they see this is a faithful God. This is a loving God. This is a gracious God. This is a mighty God. He is able to keep his promises, and he is willing to keep his promises. At the cross, God's chain of unbreakable promises is fully kept. And so what should your response be? It should be to stake your life on the promises of God. It should be to stake your life on every promise of Scripture, to to live in response to that promise, to live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. I want to ask the music team to come up so we prepare to respond to this psalm, so we prepare to respond to what God has shown us this morning. So we prepare to sing, I just want to ask you to, to bow your heart, close your eyes, Think of God's promises to you in his word and realize that that promise has been kept in Jesus Christ. And now each day you are walking through life and you're going through things, you're going through circumstances, you're going through trials, you're going through ups and downs and you are part of God's story and there will be a day when Christ returns. And how do you know that you can stake your life on that promise? It's because of the cross. It's because you look at the sinless son of David bearing your sin, eternally securing God's steadfast love for you. You cannot outrun God's love. You cannot separate yourself from the steadfast love of God. Rejoice today. Exult in God. Express your thankfulness to God as we worship together. And whether you are someone who has done this before or someone who has never done this, I encourage you to stake your life on this God and on his promises during this time.